Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. And those people that get all hung up in trying to establish the kingdom for our Lord, and there are many caught up in the delusion that somehow we got to usher in the kingdom so the Lord can return. No, the Lord returns and He establishes His kingdom. Until then, if you want to do something to help the kingdom be established, if, if you'd like to see His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, submit your life fully to Him. Today we complete Pastor Sam's message, Condemned. We're starting in Matthew 27, verse 6, as this study is looking at the first 31 verses of this chapter. Herein we see the results of Judas's betrayal, including Jesus' trials, which led up to his crucifixion. The chief priest, well, they say, we can't take this money and put it in the treasury. It's the price of blood. Here's the irony. They didn't want to do anything that would have been ceremonially defiling. In fact, when they take Jesus to the praetorium, when they, they take him to Pilate, they don't want to go in lest they be ceremonially defiled. What that means is they couldn't worship and uh, be a part of the Passover that was taking place. So they, they don't want to do anything outwardly that would defile them. But get this, they've had no problem with three illegal trials, with trying Jesus as, at night, which was illegal, trying him and, and pronouncing sentence without giving him the 24-hour waiting period, which was demanded in their law, doing it over Passover, which was also illegal. They're breaking all sorts of laws. They've condemned an innocent man, and they know it. And they're going to bring false charges against him in a moment before Pilate. In the midst of all of that, they're worried about, well, little technicalities. We can't put this money back in the treasury, probably where it came from in the first place. So they took counsel and bought with it a potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. A potter's field. It's an interesting picture. Of course, the Old Testament provides us with the imagery. Our, our, our Lord, our God is called the potter. And of course, we are called, well, his creation. He's the potter and, well, he's fashioning and forming and making us. But what was a potter's field? That was the place where a potter would take all of the broken and useless and worthless materials, the, the leftovers, the discards, those things that didn't work out and, well, he'd throw them out into the field. And that field would then become worthless. You couldn't graze your animals in it. You couldn't really plant in it. So it was a worthless field filled with worthless pottery. Interesting picture because our Lord, of course, tells us in Matthew 13 that the field is the world. And if he's the potter and we're the clay and the world sees it this way, let's face it, the world looks on even at one another and says worthless, useless, never going to amount to anything, never going to accomplish anything. And the Lord looks at those broken, shattered, devastated lives and says, I can make something beautiful of that. Why? He's the potter. And he knows how to heat up the furnace of affliction, how to soften that clay with the water of his word and to do something awesome and wonderful in the lives of those people his hands are upon. Well, then was fulfilled, and yet here's one more apparent contradiction. That which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, They took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. What's the apparent contradiction? Well, 
It's from Zechariah, you see, and not Jeremiah. And some have tried to put it together and, and try to figure out, well, there's something there in Jeremiah that could be similar. And others have suggested, no, Matthew just got mixed up. I don't think that happened at all. Matthew wasn't mixed up. He is very detail-oriented. I mean, the guy used to be a tax collector. We have an accountant here. You bring her a receipt to the penny or you don't get your reimbursement. And that's the kind of guy Matthew was, you see. And so he was going to get it right. Well, why would he say Jeremiah if he knew it was Zechariah? The answer is actually a simple one. When we think of the law, if I were to say to you, the law of God, well, what image comes to mind? For, for many of us, it's the Ten Commandments. The law of God is the Ten Commandments. But for the Jew, it was much more. It was the book of Leviticus. Some of you are saying, Levita what? Never heard of it, never read it. Well, I hope you do. In fact, we are going to study it sometime soon on Wednesday nights. But it's the third book of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It was the book of the law. Well, not only Leviticus, but Deuteronomy, two books later, fifth book of Moses, it was also a second giving of the law. So to the Jewish mind, and remember that's who these guys were, they're pre-Christian here. Jesus is yet to die for them, so they've not yet become Christians, or, well, in any case, the law, Ten Commandments, or the Ten Commandments in the book of Leviticus, or the Ten Commandments, the book of Leviticus, and the book of Deuteronomy, or the Torah, the first five books of Moses. All of that was called the law. The, the Psalms, when they wanted to talk about the poetic literature of Scripture, they often incorporated all of them within the Psalms. So they'd say the law and the Psalms, well, that included the Psalms, the, the Proverbs and, and Ecclesiastes and well, those Song of Solomon, the other books that were poetry, you see. And then there were the prophets, and often they would kind of lump the prophets under Jeremiah, one of the major prophets, one of the, the larger books of the Old Testament. So if they said the law, it could be the Torah. If they said the Psalms, it could be all of the poetry. And if they said Jeremiah, they were talking about the prophecies. So Zechariah, in that case, is a part of Jeremiah. It's sort of overseeing or, or being the bigger picture in all of that. Well, in any case... Apparent contradictions are just that. They're apparent. But there's always an answer. And don't be afraid to ask people the question. Show me the, the contradiction because if you can't deal with it, you can say, you know what, I really can't answer that, but I'll go down or I'll make a call and I'll get you the answer. And come down or call us and we'll provide it. If there is an answer, we'll give it to you. If there is no answer, this is my favorite. Been doing it for decades now and more and more. I just tell people I don't know. And they're like, what? You don't know? Well, there it is, see? It's not true. Listen, just because we don't know something doesn't mean we don't know plenty. We know why we're here. The world doesn't know that. We know how we got here. The world doesn't know that. We're here because God made us and He made us for Himself. And, well, in any case, we go on now back to the trial. Jesus' first trial before Pilate in verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. I ask the question that way or phrase it because that you, it's emphatic. You see, Pilate was sort of amazed looking at Jesus. When he thought of a king, he thought of someone with some power, with some authority, with some splendor, with, well, an entourage. And here's Jesus and he's 
doesn't really look like much and he's not really saying anything and, and they're saying he says he's a king. In fact, the civil charges made against Jesus, first that he was perverting the nation. We don't even have to deal with that. It's such an absurdity. The second is he forbid them to pay taxes to Caesar. We know that's far from what happened. In fact, when he was asked, must we pay our taxes? He said, show me the coin, show me the money. And they did. And he said, whose inscription is it? Caesar's. Well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Jesus never said, don't pay Caesar his taxes. He said, you must pay your taxes. Romans build on that, builds on that, saying that we're to be good citizens, that we're to be submitted to the government that God has placed over us. We're to support them, even though we may disagree with them. In any case, the charges perverting the nation, false. Forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, false. Proclaiming himself Christ and King. Hmm... The truth is, Jesus is the Christ. He is not just the King of the Jews, but the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this charge, it's actually true. But Jesus, of course, as Pilate says, are you the King of the Jews? Jesus, if you look at the other gospel accounts, he says, look, my kingdom, it's not of this world. What's he saying? You don't have to be threatened. I'm no threat to Caesar. It's not what I'm here about. It's, it's not what I'm doing. My kingdom isn't of this world. And those people that get all hung up in trying to establish the kingdom for our Lord, and there are many caught up in the delusion that somehow we got to usher in the kingdom so the Lord could return. No, the Lord returns and He establishes His kingdom. Until then, if you want to do something to help the kingdom be established, if, if you'd like to see His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, submit your life fully to Him. And there will be His kingdom in your life, His kingdom in your home, His kingdom in our community. But that's how it happens, you see. One person at a time as we submit our lives to the King of Kings. Well, He asks, are you the King of the Jews? And He acknowledges, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. And Pilate says, don't you hear how many things they testify against you? And he answered him, not one word, that the governor marveled greatly. Now, Pilate gets wind during this first trial that Jesus isn't from Judea, but from Galilee. That was the region of Herod. Herod, not the same one who destroyed the children at Jesus' birth, but the one who put John the Baptist to death. And there are a whole line of these Herods, each one worse than their father and grandfather. They are just succeedingly decadent and, and horrible. But in any case, Pilate's trying to get out of it all, all of it. And he, and he says, here's my way out. I'll send him to Herod. He's from Herod's jurisdiction. So he sends Jesus to Herod. Now, Herod gets all excited. Herod's thinking, this is the guy that I've heard about, the miracle worker. And, and he's thinking, I'll get Jesus to put on a little show for me. And Herod, interesting in Scripture, he is the only one, at least recorded for us, to whom Jesus had absolutely nothing to say. It's amazing. Even his bitter enemies, he'd say, woe to you or repent. But to Herod, he said absolutely nothing. So Herod ends up mocking him, his soldiers abusing him, and then he sends him back to Pilate. And when he comes back to Pilate, well, Pilate is now in a tough place. He's already 
realized that, well, we'll read it, but that Jesus had done nothing to deserve death. Maybe he was a problem to the Jews, but he was no threat to Rome. And so as he comes back, he tries yet another tact. At the feast, we read in verse 15, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And they had a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. He was involved in an insurrection. He was a murderer. He had a cross fashioned and formed for him and he belonged on it. So he gathers Jesus and Barabbas and brings them out before the mob, the crowd. Therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew because of envy they had delivered him. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife had sent to him saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Claudia, she was a daughter of Augustus, married to Pilate, living there with Pilate. She had converted to Judaism at some point and and ultimately becomes a Christian. That's what history tells us. But at this point, she has a dream. She comes in and as Judas had earlier saying he's innocent, she says he's just. Have nothing to do with that just man. She's saying find a way out of this mess. Well, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The multitudes, the mob. Listen, it's a dangerous thing to go with the flow, to go with the crowd. Somebody said at one point, it's any old dead fish can float downstream. And, and that's true. And here's a great crowd of people less than a week Prior, there was a great crowd crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, literally. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now they're crying, crucify him, crucify him. It's a dangerous thing to get caught up in the crowd, to get caught up in a mob. And so we need to be thinking for ourselves, and we need to be checking out what's going on, not just following the crowd, even if the crowd seems religious, because, hey, This was the religious crowd. These were the religious leaders who were prompting their decision. And so they're saying, what shall we do? You know, who do I want? Who do you want me to release? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said Barabbas. And Pilate said, and here's the question, ultimately, Pilate had to deal with that we all have to deal with. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? It makes you wonder who was really on trial here. Oh yeah, Jesus was being tried and he was submitted to it. But the bottom line is, Pilate was on trial, the religious leaders were on trial, the people were on trial because when you sit in judgment on Jesus, you put yourself in a position, well, you have to make a decision. What shall I do with Jesus? And if you like that crowd would have said, well, crucify him. Maybe you wouldn't, though. Maybe you'd say, well, I don't know what to do with them. I don't, I don't want to do anything with them. I don't want to make a decision. Listen, Pilate didn't want to make a decision either. He wanted out of it. And so he's, he's really saying, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said to him, let him be crucified. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Let him be crucified. And the governor said, why? What evil has he done? 
Judas says he's innocent. Claudia says he's just. Pilate says, what evil has he done? And they cried out all the more, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw he could not prevail, but a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Two things. For the third time in these few short verses, he is pronouncing Jesus innocent, or the scriptures are saying so. First Judas, then Claudia, now Pilate. But he says, washing his hands before them, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. Could that be the case? How can the one who is legally charged with the disposition of this case, the one who ultimately has to make a decision, how can he be innocent if he lets an innocent man go to his death and lets a guilty man go free? Was Pilate innocent? Not at all. In fact, if you're one of those many who wish you had more authority or more power or more something, listen, with power, with authority comes responsibility. And, well, Pilate here bears a great responsibility. He wasn't innocent. He was as guilty as could be. And he could say, well, I'm not deciding, but he had decided. Because of his fear of Rome, because of his fear of the people, because of his fear of the religious leaders, because he was a vacillating, weak leader, he tries to say, I'm innocent. No, he was as guilty as any of them. And all the people answered and said, verse 25, his blood be on us and on our children. Now, I'd suggest to you that if someone's going to call a curse down, they ought to leave their children out of it. But here's something interesting and important. The Old Testament says, God will not punish the children for the sins of the fathers, nor the fathers for the sins of the children. It's important to note it. Because some reading this have thought, well, he did punish the children for the sins of the fathers. No, he punished them for their own sins. That's how it works out. Each generation deals with God in their generation. And each individual stands before God, well, alone and is judged individually. And, and when they say, well, calling a curse from heaven, his blood be on us and on our children, the bottom line is the children, they would perish, but not because of their father's foolishness, because of their own sinfulness. By 70 AD, oh, multitudes of that generation were wiped out by Rome. Many became Christians, escaped out of the city, went and planted churches all over the place, spread the gospel as God instructed them to do. But we come back now to Barabbas, and he released Barabbas to them. Released Barabbas. He is the first to go free as Jesus takes his place on the cross. And I know they made a movie, but I don't really remember it, and I don't know historically what really happened to Barabbas. Some have suggested he became a Christian because of all of this. I hope he did. If he did, we'll ask him when we get to heaven. Reminds me of somebody years ago who was in a classroom and, and their teacher was sort of mocking the whole Christian deal and the whole Old Testament as well. And, and he's like, you know, you really believe that like Jonah was in the belly of a fish? Yeah, I believe that wholeheartedly. You believe that Daniel was in the lion's den? Yeah, I believe it. And he goes, well, well, you think they're going to be in heaven? And he goes, well, yeah, I believe it. And he goes, well, what are you going to do if you get to heaven and they're, they're not there? He says, well, you can ask them. Well, you know, so... And, but 
but this is that, that kind of a situation. Barabbas went free, but was he really free? Well, free physically, but unless he gave his life to the Lord, we don't know what really happened to him. We know that he would still be held accountable for his sins, and they were many. We do know, and we'll look at it next time, there was someone who that day would go free completely, and that would be the thief on the cross who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus would say, today you'll be with me in paradise. Real freedom is not just getting away with it, as Barabbas appears to have. He got set free even though he was guilty. But he would still pay for his sins before God unless, in fact, he asked forgiveness of God, turned his life to God. Well, they release Barabbas and they scourge Jesus and deliver him to be crucified. They say it all in just those four words. He had scored, scourged Jesus. You know, if you've seen the passion, the brutality of that scourging, it was a flagellum. It was a series of pieces of leather with bone and, and glass and, well, other sharp and tearing objects. They give them 39 stripes, supposed to be 40, one off for mercy's sake, and many died under that beating. Our Lord, though, survived it, and I believe that's part of what causes Pilate when he brings him back out, says, Behold the man. Well, in any case, he was scourged, delivered to be crucified. And we read in these last few verses of the mocking worship of those soldiers of that day. And, and while we look at this and we wonder, how could such a thing be? Listen, it just shows the callousness, first of all, of the religious leaders and the cowardness of Pilate who could have and should have done something. And then we just see the the hostility and the brutality of the soldiers of that day. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium. They gathered the whole garrison around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they twisted a crown of thorns, they put it in his hand, put in his hand a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! We know that Mark tells us, bowing before him, bowing the knee, they worshipped him. Now, it was mock worship, but I'm reminded that the scripture says someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Even those who will spend eternity separated from him in hell will acknowledge him and worship him. But it will be too late for those multitudes here they bowed the knee, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, took a reed, striking him on the head. And when they mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. The subject of our study next time. Crucified for your sins. Crucified for my sins. Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. So the question remains... What shall I then do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? If you've given your life to Jesus, well then live your life for Jesus. That's what you should do with Jesus. If you've never given your life to Jesus, you have a decision to make. And you could be like those chief priests and say, well, I think he was deluded. I think he was a blasphemer. I think he was dangerous. I think he deserved to die. If that's your decision, well, then you'll live and die with that decision. But, but if you realize that he was an innocent man and not just a pawn in all of this, he came and laid down his life willingly 
No, he did it for you. He knew why he was here. He knew what he came to do. He submitted himself to it. And here's what you should do. What should you do with Jesus? You should give your life to him. You should bend your knee before him. You should confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you should give your heart and your life to him completely. In Revelation 13, 8, Jesus is referred to as the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. What exactly does that mean? Well, the fall of mankind into sin and the need for our redemption did not catch God by surprise. This is not God's plan B. Jesus' crucifixion was planned before creation was even completed. Now, when I think about this, it gives a little more depth to my understanding of just how much our Lord loves and cares for us. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.